0: One Sabbath, when Jesus went to share a meal in one of the homes of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. A man suffering from edema was there. Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, Does the law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? But they said nothing. Jesus took hold of the sick man, cured him, and then let him go. He said to them, Suppose your child or your ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath day. Wouldn't you immediately pull it out? But they had no response. When Jesus noticed how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this seat to the other person. Embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who had invited him, When you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return. And that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite those who are living in poverty, who are disabled or looked down upon. And you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, they said to Jesus, Happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs)
1: Hi. When I was a kid, God was my best friend. I'm an only child, so growing up I spent a fair amount of time playing by myself and making up stories in my own head. This is not a complaint. I truly had the best time. Make believe was my favorite thing to do. A key facet of all of these imagination games was the characters that inhabited them. The fairies, the animals, the bin pole frizz, the golden scribble bug, or the sad squash, all of which were imaginary friends I made up to keep me company. It is there that I believe God lies, or at least lay for me. I was somehow able to bring these characters to life. I remember having whole conversations with them without having any sense that they were made up in my own head. They were, in fact, very real. At that age, I never questioned it. I just thought that was how the world was going to be forever. Now that I'm older, I believe that was God speaking to me. Certainly, I was speaking to something larger than myself, and it was speaking back. To this day, I believe my imagination is the greatest skill I have. But I can't speak to these friends anymore. I try, mostly in math class, but my my imagination always fails me. They don't seem real, and they don't talk back. There is something about a child's perspective that is uniquely positioned to let God in. As you grow up, you learn how to behave and what to question. It's easier to block God out, even unintentionally. A child is willing to accept the world around them. They do not question or overthink it when God comes to them. So, the question becomes, how do we do this too? How do we accept God like a child? I don't really know, but I'm learning, especially from the little children. At my school, I'm a big sister to two little girls in the current first grade class. I go down to their playground during lunch and play freeze tag for 30 minutes, or try and fail to do the monkey bars all the way across. It's one of the most rewarding experiences of my high school career. While I know childhood is far from simple, there is something utterly effortless about the way they show emotion, especially their love. It seems like they don't question it at all. They just feel. One of my little girls, Elsie, is the most affectionate and jubilant child I've ever met. She was obsessed with me from the day I met her, and I love her for that. The other, Eleanor, is more complicated. She reminds me of myself. For the first month I knew her, she wouldn't answer any of the questions I asked. How was your day? I don't know. What would you have for lunch? I don't know. Where do you want to go next? I don't know. While Elsie chatted, Eleanor would stare at me in silence and always wait for the other kids to run up before running herself. She wasn't shy necessarily, just withdrawn. I think this is how we come to God, cautious, hesitating, waiting for the right moment, for the perfect feeling of acceptance to come before we make a move. Like the guests of the great dinner who make excuses and avoid attending, we withdraw from his love. When God asks us if we'd like to come to dinner, we say, I don't know. This is why I can't imagine my friends how I used to, because I question myself too much, because I say, I don't know, more often than I say, I do know. I have forgotten how to feel and be like a child. I still remember the day Eleanor ran up the hill and into my arms first, when she jumped up and down and waved at me as I said goodbye. I haven't smiled that big in ages. I think God feels the same. He is waiting for us to jump up and down and wave him over and let him be there without questioning it. So I encourage you to be like a child. When the dinner invitation to God's table comes, hush your I don't knows and accept it without question. Amen.
2: Two months ago, a friend of mine passed away suddenly at the age of 16. We weren't especially close, more friendly acquaintances than anything, but their death really shook me. Maybe it was the fact that I'd seen them in the hallway just the day before, or the fact that they were younger than me, or more likely the fact that we hadn't had the opportunity to speak since June. At their funeral, I ended up learning that they were very religious. I heard their father speak of how involved they were with their church and how the hymns played during the service were their favorites. It surprised me, and I realized that I had been projecting my own beliefs onto their, and onto my image of them. Prior to their funeral, I didn't want much to do with religion. I liked the community of the youth group and the choir, but that was about the extent of it. But since then, i found myself thinking about it a lot more, mostly about an afterlife. I've caught myself thinking that I'm sure they're happy in heaven, even though I haven't believed in it since I was eight. In middle school, I absolutely hated religion, like full-on detested. I don't even remember why. However, I do remember thinking that my beliefs wouldn't ever change and I'd hold such a distaste for religion my entire life. In hindsight, that was very naive of me. People change. That's a fact of life, especially when you're in middle school. Middle school's the worst. You just despise everyone and everything to no end. (laughs) I've obviously moved away from bitter hatred since then. Over the summer, when I went on the high school mission trip to Northern Ireland, I learned a lot about the troubles between Catholics and Protestants and how much influence religion has on people's lives, which really astonished me. I can't understand on a personal level caring so much about your religious beliefs and identity that you'd fight for them, but being in a place where people did made me realize a bit more just how important religion is to a lot of people. Sometimes I forget that I'm in the minority as someone who isn't religious. Despite that, I really enjoy learning about theology, even if more in an academic way. I find the stories of the Bible to be very interesting. While previously I would sit off to the side when people were talking about religion, nowadays I'm pretty eager to participate in these conversations. The most important thing about this change is that I'm respectful about our differences in beliefs, which unfortunately wasn't the case a few years back. I really like hearing my friends' views on religion and especially hearing them talk about their faith in it as it's something that I've never been able to comprehend in the past. Listening to and trying to understand beliefs that you don't personally hold is a skill that I deeply value and something that I'm trying to apply to other things. Being the kind of person who gets stuck in her own ways, it's definitely something that I'm having to work toward, but hopefully there's nowhere to go but up. The world around us is constantly changing and I know that I'm not alone in thinking that it's difficult to deal with. But I think that as a collective, we should at least try to be more cognizant of that. Things change, that's a fact of life. But we should try not to go through life completely stuck in our ways, because that's not productive. Open-mindedness is one of the quickest paths to self-betterment, but it's certainly not the easiest. It's a tumultuous one of weaves, bends, and forks, which no one has the map to. But the joy is in the journey. I know that the funeral was only a couple months ago, but I feel I've grown a bit since then. Death changes a person, especially the sudden death of one so young. At the moment, I still don't believe in a higher power, but that may come to change. I used to very firmly reject the notion of an afterlife, but I think that may be shifting. When I sit down to think about it, I really Didn't know my friend all that well. But I know that I did and always will consider them someone dear to me. Life changes, but that won't. I'm certain of it. I'm not sure if I believe in heaven, but what I do know is that if it does exist, Cameron is up there. If anyone deserves to be, it's them. Thank you.
3: When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, they said to Jesus,
0: Happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom.
3: Jesus replied, a certain man hosted a large dinner and invited many people. When it was time for dinner to begin, he sent his servant to tell the invited guests, Come, the the dinner is now ready. One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him,
0: I bought a farm and must go and see it. Please excuse me.
3: Another said,
4: I bought five teams of oxen and I'm going to check on them. Please excuse me.
3: Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. (laughs) When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go quickly to the city streets, the busy ones, and the side streets, and bring the poor, the disabled, the outcasts. The servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed, and there is still room. The master said to his servant, go to the highways and back alleys, and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will taste my dinner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
5: A couple of weeks ago, Olivia met us for dinner at Delray Pizzeria to discuss the topic and scripture that we would be discussing today. She had come prepared with some possible options in a packet. Now, I don't know if she missed her morning coffee that day or just felt like challenging us, but those scriptures were tough. We read through them all independently and came back together to discuss our favorites. I, admittedly, may have been a little distracted by my meat lover's pizza. Because of this, I kind of just nodded in agreement when it came time to choose the scripture without really knowing what I was getting myself into. Fast forward a week later, and I think it's safe to say that this parable was giving us all a run for our money. See, there's a glaring problem with the parable of the great dinner. If you do what is done with most parables and interpret the main character, in this case the host, to be God, you'll find yourself just like we did facing the question of why the rich were invited first. I spent some time trying to justify the host's actions if he really were supposed to represent God, and I was unsuccessful. I began to think that maybe I was barking up the wrong tree. That's when I realized what I believe to be the real purpose of this parable. I realized that by justifying the host's actions, I was judging him and saying, well, He can't be God because God wouldn't have prioritized the rich and fortunate and invited them to his dinner first. It was easy for me to sit and judge the host. But then I thought, would I have done anything different? No, probably not. See, it's easy for us to sit back and judge, judge other people's choices, actions, judge who they invite to their dinner party. It's hard, however, for us to actually do better ourselves for us to do the right thing, even when it's hard, for us to go out of our way to help someone, for us to invite the poor and disabled first. It'll always be easier easier for us to judge others than to self-reflect. This parable, of course, comes right after what Jesus says is, in my opinion, the most important line of this whole chapter. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted." In saying this, Jesus instructs us to remain humble, both in our lives and our deeds, and he does so immediately before instructing us to not pass judgment on others' wrongdoings, and instead indicates we should focus on correcting our own. This reminded me of a clip I saw of a speech by former Navy SEAL and ultramarathon runner, David Goggins. In this one of his many speeches, he talks about taking action. In this clip, Goggins is on character with his signature all-too-real honesty. Uh, He talks about how taking action is hard, but it's necessary to achieve your goals. How not doing something is always going to be easier than doing it, but it will always also be less productive. See, the same is true for us as Christians. It's always going to be easier to not read our Bible, to not pray, to pass judgment on others and take the highest seat at the table. However, we must stay attentive and do as Christ instructed us, to do the hard thing, humble ourselves, take the lowest seat at the table, invite the less fortunate just as we invite the well off. The message that Christ sends through this chapter is that we should not be quick to judge others and instead reflect upon our own actions and impact and remain humble. Take the hard route, but the right one, and do good for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of ourselves. Because as Christ said, those who do so will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Amen.
4: Community. What comes to mind when you hear the word community? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's your teammates if you play sports. Maybe it's your coworkers if you're lucky. Maybe it's all of the above. If, like me, you grew up in a church, maybe you count that as community too. But we still don't think of community as a concept. We're more likely to think of it in terms of whether or not we have people to lean on, we have someone to talk to, or whether we have someone to do something with. It's only recently that I've begun to realize how vital a role community plays in my own life. Maybe that's because it seems like our society is geared for isolation. Technology has provided us with the ability to do almost anything from home, from ordering food to going to the doctor to even dating. Yet as our daily tasks get easier, we seem to feel more alone. When no one even has to leave the house to get things done, it can be extremely difficult for anyone to feel like they have a supportive group to, of people to lean on. Take school, for example. When I was younger, school really felt like a community. I knew all the teachers in my grade, not just my own. And I knew every kid's name in my school, even if I didn't know them well. We had time to hang out and just be in each other's company at recess and after school. Then I got to high school. The pandemic was in full swing, so I spent my freshman year behind a screen, alone, like many teens all over the country. When I went back to in-person learning my sophomore year, something had changed. Instead of feeling like I was back with my people, it felt like we were just one nameless masked mass, shuffling from one classroom to another, oftentimes not even speaking to one another. Some of us found our friend groups but that can be little comfort when so many of us are on completely different schedules. But here at Westminster, I see a difference. People don't go around not speaking and acting like anyone who's not in their little social bubble doesn't exist. Here, you will find a tight-knit group of people who know and love each other with a common ground in faith. In the scripture we just heard, God's message is that everyone has a seat at his table. Similarly, everyone has a seat in a pew at Westminster. I have come to notice and appreciate this more and more as I've grown up. I have been attending Westminster all my life. I started attending Westminster uh, weekday preschool when I was two. I was baptized here by Pastor Larry when I was four. I participated in children's choir through fifth grade, went on mission trips with the Westminster's youth, and was able to be ordained and serve on session as a youth elder. Through all these years, I've seen the members of the church welcome everyone through its doors and show them a place in our pews. Just last last month, I brought one of my closest friends here for the first time for the high school youth's lock-in. She was a little wary of going to a new church, but the youth community took her right in and we stayed up until three in the morning playing games together and having fun. Not every church is like Westminster. Not all churches have a community the way we do. Someone may be skeptical about going to a new church because the last time they did so, they were not accepted for who they were, they were not welcomed or they were even turned away and none of those things are things that God has taught. Our community is already so beautiful thanks to the kind and generous hearts of our congregation. But it would be even more beautiful if we made space in our pews for everyone in the community. Those who do not look like we do, or perhaps think as we do. Those whose jobs or families are different from our own. Now is the time to go out and make a welcome sign for the entire community outside of these walls. Show them what my friends saw, that there really is a seat for everyone here at God's table. Amen.
6: The world expects a lot from us, whether it's work, school, or even just social lives. At work, we have deadlines to meet and responsibilities. School has the potential to determine our futures, and social events can be exhausting. While it's important to try your best, and at least try to give things 100% effort, it's just not possible to do it all. As humans, we burn out, we get tired, and we can't give everything 100% of our energy. Maybe one day you're on top of everything, check everything off your to-do list, and you and you finish a project you've been working on for weeks. And the next day, it's hard to even get out of bed. It can sometimes feel like you're nowhere close to meeting the expectations, even if people tell you you're doing great. Failure to do everything, failure to do everything you asked is, can often be seen as laziness or lack of success, but failure has never really been final. We forget that failure is also a part of learning and growing. I've been a member of the baseball community since I played t-ball in second grade, and many of my friends are too. It's always been a constant thing in my life until my sophomore year. Up to that point, I was never very serious about getting bigger and stronger as I was focused on other things I enjoyed in life. So when high school season came around, I didn't make the cut and my, my world flipped around. I lost something that had been a given in previous years because I wasn't giving 100%. This allowed me a chance to think about my priorities and what I personally wanted. I stopped putting so much pressure on myself to meet the expectations of coaches and statistics, and just had fun with the game and put the effort that I wanted to give. I didn't become great. I don't stand out on any team, but I play my role and I enjoy my time there and the people there, and that's all I really wanted from the game. With this pressure gone, I've been able to give that energy to more things that I care about. I've been able to focus more on school, be a- be more active here at Westminster spend time with my friends before I graduate, and just give myself time to rest and be a teenager. In reading this scripture and hearing the interpretations of the other youth, I've thought a lot about these expectations and how we address them. We come to this church and we admit our failures and sins in songs and prayer, but take that high seat at the table when we leave the building, hiding our failures and our flaws from others, worried about how people see us, and holding ourselves above others, worried about failure. It's easy to admit these things within the walls of the church. They're on paper, and we, we all understand them, but we have to make an effort to show our vulnerability outside of this church as well. We have the power to make people comfortable in our community and take that low seat as we do here in church. Jesus took our expectations and turned them upside down, placing love and mercy above everything else, and we can continue to model that kind of grace for ourselves and others in our lives today.